1: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365
2: day returns.
3: I'm not just writing history, I am making it.
2: I have the brain of a historian and the clapback of a comedian.
0: better come with sources, because I always check footnotes.
3: Hello, welcome to another episode of Historians on Housewives. You're here with me, Casey.
2: Hi, you're here with me, Dr. J-Mail, the millionairess. You're also here with me, Max, flying economy.
0: (laughs) So
3: today we have kind of a heavier but really important episode topic to to cover um, going over domestic violence, intimate partner violence and child abuse. And so you might notice for listeners that tune in regularly that our Bonko party and our Bravo news segment are very close to the beginning so that we could handle all of the more light lighthearted things initially right up at the front without interrupting the flow of the conversation later. And I think to set up the episode today, it's really the perfect opportunity to let Jessica take it away on her new book project and the ways in which she is grappling every day in her own writing right now with issues of domestic violence and, and survivors
2: well, thank you. I'm so excited that we, we are doing this episode. Um, it's a very important episode, and I think that it has the potential to actually change some people's lives. Um, hopefully, the, if people are listening that are struggling with um, an abusive situation or, or aren't quite sure if they're in an abusive situation, hopefully our guest will help clarify and, and provide some steps for you to assess your situation my second book project, or rather my next book project, I never thought I'd be able to say second book. My next book project looks at um, African-American women intimate partner and intimate partner violence um, in the post-Civil War South. So I look particularly at the first 50 years after enslavement and how African-American women are protesting things that might be happening in their personal life. Um, this is the first time, and I need to underscore this, this is the first time that African-American women had legal control of their own bodies, So I deal with questions such as if they go and take a husband to court or a boyfriend to court um, because he is beating on her, or if they alert the authorities, what does this mean, particularly in this moment when at one point um, you know they're testing the boundaries of having legal rights, but at the same time, if you know anything about African-American culture, what you do not do is go to the authorities. I'm also looking at it in terms of... um, A kind of proto-feminist moment in that um, if self-care and black feminism are intertwined, this would also be a moment that we see this um, manifesting itself. And thirdly, the book is really interested in this afterlife of abuse. What does it mean to reconcile one's life um what does it mean to negotiate at this point what african-american women are negotiating is not just a new southern system a new system of laws without slavery but they're also negotiating new laws that allow them to get married allow them to actually um have a personal life that was not before recognized so what is put in jeopardy when they encounter these situations um and it's very interesting. There's obviously there's some very heartbreaking stories, but there's also some empowering stories that um, even with everything against them, women felt that it was important enough to go to the courts or go to someone who could help them rectify their situation. So I I don't want to say I'm enjoying this work. That would that would that's not the right way to say it. But it's a very interesting journey that these women are taking me on. And um, I look forward to bringing their their stories to everyone in the greater public. Fulfilling? fulfilling. can I just may I say this? The first book that you do, the tenure book. Um, some people do it. they don't have any problems. It's very status quo. They do it. it's great, goes on to to um, win great awards. Some of us also. <laughs> fulfilling some people have joy when they write my first project I didn't feel like I had joy when I was writing um, it felt onerous it felt heavy um, it felt it, it it just felt I wasn't enjoying the process
0: you carry the people with you I lot. carried
2: the people with me yeah. right as you know because you do slavery you yeah. just carry it and so I was yeah. carrying that and then I've I've talked about that more um, in other places but with this project it's fulfilling. And I feel like, um, whereas in the first book project where Charity Folks was used to being remaining hidden, and I felt like I was ciphering through these layers of her remaining hidden, I feel like these women want their stories told. And so there's a different kind of energy, and there's a different kind of like activism that kind of even takes over with the pen. So I'm just honored that um, I can tell their stories, and can't wait to bring them into the public light.
3: Our guest today, Rosie Jones is the program's manager at Turning Point, a St. Louis area domestic and sexual violence shelter. Additionally, she adjuncts for local universities in her area. Her research interests include intimate partner violence, the social construction of menstruation, and gender and policy. So with that, welcome Rosie Jones.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
3: So I would like us to jump right into our Bonko Party game break. And I think it's important to do this first today um, so that we don't break up our flow of the things we're going to be talking to, with you about. So today's game is called Design Your Yacht Day. So I was thinking of this as um, if you could have the ultimate Below deck, below deck, med, pampering. Um, who would you pick? So I'm going to make this a collaborative game. So you I have. Love it. So the three of you have to agree on um, who you're going to pick as captain, bosun, chef, and chief stew. Okay. Right. So this is if historians on Housewives set sailing today. Okay. And you guys can fight it out and, you know, lobby to convince each other of who you want leading this boat. So our first up is who do you want for captain? We've had um, three choices here. We have captain Lee, captain Sandy and captain Mark. I think we tend to forget about him, but he existed for one season.
0: (laughs) He never came out of his cabin. No,
3: he just stayed
1: there the whole time.
3: Yeah. He was um, definitely a little less involved than Lee or Sandy. So, um, which of those three captains do you want running the H on H cruise?
1: I would say for sure Captain Sandy.
3: Okay, we have a vote for Sandy.
1: Why? Um, I think she cares about the crew. Um but like does so in a very professional way. I like that she sets boundaries and like knows when it's time to leave the dinners and takes constructive feedback.
0: Did you feel that, did you see the season finale of Blow Deck? Yes. Did you feel that after Aisha levied that, like, mutinous charge right. against her?
1: Right. I liked that, like, Sandy took it and reflected upon it and then had, like, that follow-up conversation
0: with Hannah.
2: hmm So, I, I don't want to say that I would say none of them. Um, <laughs> I was actually raised not on a yacht okay because you know but I was raised on a freshwater 21 foot boat and but I understand the importance of making sure everything is set up so I like mm-hmm. the, ca- the captain Sandy really got on them about the table designs I was with her like what is this it should already be set up before before anyone walks out do it the night before I don't know mm-hmm. if that's because of my upbringing, but I felt I felt with, with her on that. I I did not like the treatment that she gave the women over over the men or the men over the women because they were just as much of drunken screw-ups. <laughs> so they were drunken screw-ups, at least Travis, right? Am I getting it right? No, yes. Drunken yeah. screw-up.
0: Um and they really all were. Travis was just the most egregious. The most egregious.
2: Yeah. Um in terms of Captain Lee, I like how he describes himself as kind of not really, look, wait, let me pause. Did he say this or did Casey? He kind of, uh, he describes himself as kind of an outlier. Like he doesn't fit the brand. Is this, you guys that said this or? I don't know who said that. But he says he doesn't really fit the Bravo brand because he's kind of rough and tumble in some ways. Oh, we did
0: have a conversation about this recently. This was one
2: of our Bravo-demics. Okay, this is one of our Bravo-demics.
3: I forget which one. Because we talk about Captain Lee a lot.
2: Oh, my God. We're not citing women properly. We are. We
3: just, oh. Was it it Emily Riles? Might have been.
2: We're going to have to go back to our own archives. That's not good politics. (laughs) (laughs) I will say of all three, Captain Mark, did Uh I make his name up? No, that's Captain Uh, Mark. This is what happens when you record late in the day and you don't want another cup of coffee because you'll be too jittery. I, of all of them, Captain Mark would would work for me the best because he just stayed to himself. He just stayed to himself. I mean, that's more like my personality in those kind of situations. But Max gave me the eye like, nah, I'm not Captain Mark.
0: Um, Yeah, Captain Mark seems a little bit like mashed potatoes to me.
2: <laughs> what do you mean? Like a mess <laughs> like what do you mean?
0: <laughs> he can be a mess. No, he just seems... Like, we're filming a show here. Like, give me a little something. Like, Lee always puts his masculinity up front and center, and I think that's part of his appeal
2: on Bravo. And he brings it for the camera, is that yeah. what you're saying?
0: He brings it for the camera. Captain Mark didn't leave his room. Like I think some people are gonna be like running to their computers right now listening to us talk about Captain Mark. What did
2: Captain Mark look like again? Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying he didn't just didn't give us enough?
0: Yeah. I'm gonna have to go with her guess that like sandy might be the best and this might come from me feeling a little mutinous on board the ship and i think sandy is the most lax as we saw with jack Uh, jack jack, jack yeah. yeah with jack this season of like not actually doing the work he At was all yeah he was really
2: lazy
3: are you gonna cave are you gonna say sandy we have to have consensus.
2: I mean, politically, I can't not say Sandy, right? Yeah. All I like is,
1: of- on Bravo. But yeah. I
2: did go ahead and say this is the positive and the negative. So I was well representative and analytical about it. Sure, cave okay, If you guys want to go with Sandy, that's fine. But I insist <laughs> on a white party and the white gloves. Okay. <laughs> All
3: right. All right. So now we are on to our bosun, and this list is a bit longer because we've had a variety of bosuns. Oh, wow. I thought the game was over.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we got a captain. We're done.
3: Okay. So do you want Eddie, Ashton, Chandler, EJ, Kelly, Joao or Conrad?
1: Wh- wh- who do you like, Rosie? I think I might have to go with Conrad. But, but it's really a lesser of all evil kind of situation. Um, I didn't think it was fair that Hannah got more of the heat
3: mm-hmm.
1: during their romance. Um, but I think as far as, like, treating other people, I think Conrad probably comes out as the strongest for me.
3: Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how Ashton does. But um, I feel like Conrad... Um, maybe seems like he was one of the more passionate about working on a boat.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think he grew up around, like, New York Harbor. I mean, Joao
3: is passionate about boats. He just doesn't get along with anybody.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let me just say that Joao will not be on the team with me. (laughs) He will not be doing anything for fear that the toxic masculinity will be released um, somewhere along the trip. Um, I'm going to be voted off this particular conversation because of all the choices you gave us. I mean, I guess, Conrad, but despite what I just said about um, Travis and Jack, one of them would just be so much more fun.
3: Travis did Boson ah. for like one one or two days while Joao was well, recovering sick. from hepatitis.
0: huh. Well, Travis is a good addition. I might go with Travis instead.
3: I can add Travis since he technically bosomed for like a day.
0: It was either going to be that or I felt like I was going to have to argue the merits of Joao because oh, I felt God. like if we're stuck at sea, listen to me, hear me out. If we're stuck at sea, (laughs) you're like really staring at me right now. (laughs) If we're stuck at sea, I want the guy that is like setting his clock to the stars. Like he seems like he is on top of everything. He's a complete ass. (laughs) I don't want to be around him when we're not working. I don't even want to be around him while we're working. We're supposed to
3: be getting pampered.
0: Oh, if we're pampered? Yeah, who
3: who is steering our boat?
0: Oh yeah, then him. I want that guy cuz he, well, Travis too.
2: Travis, he's got he's got the the fun. He's got the the water toys out. He's got, you know, he's gawking at you inappropriately, making you feel attractive. He, he might have a bear it. in his pocket. <laughs> Trav, if you're here for a fun time guy, Travis is it is great. He's going to, you know, break all the rules about what is appropriate, and not appropriate. But if you want someone we trust our life with, I mean, I guess you wow.
0: I went with the responsible decision, but I think if we're there to party, we probably want to get into a situation that may cause a lawsuit.
3: <laughs> Travis- How do you feel about the addition of Travis, Rosie?
1: Um, I agree. I think he's much, much more fun Um, than a lot of our other choices. But like if the tip is thinking, I want uh, Joao.
2: You want jo- Joao too? Is if that what you said? said? yeah,
1: yeah. If, if, it, if we're in active titanic mode okay then yes okay
2: Point. so
3: Joao, if if we actually need a concern for safety just so you
2: know he is not going to let women and children go first just so no. you know if that's, anything happens that's why I he's want taking him. over the life preserver you know you're not or whatever the the piece of whatever um what was she hanging on at the
3: end the of door. the door the,
2: the door yeah he's gonna knock you right that off was of definitely
3: that. big enough for jack too
0: that, <laughs> yep. But that's why I want him. I want him to look out for numero uno, me. <laughs>
2: okay. <laughs> so you are thinking like an academic on this ship. Yeah. Ba-dump-bump.
3: <laughs> okay. How about picking our chef? We have a couple of chefs to pick from here. Ben, Adam, Leon, oh. Mila, Or Kevin, the new guy. And for those of you that were watching the first episode of the premiere and were really confused about why he was yelling Mr. Dobson in the toilet, his last name is Dobson.
2: So he was having a movement.
3: Yes, he was very, very ill. He had like an internal discomfort, like some sort of bug or something. And it was impairing him from being able to cook um, for the guests. But, but so he have... kept, he kept yelling, Mr. Dobson, but Mr. Dobson is his name.
0: Can I just say he's out? Cause he's not serve safe. If that's <laughs> right. Right.
3: <laughs> right. They're absolutely not. Okay. Who is your favorite chef? Rosie.
1: Um. So I think if, if I'm not dealing with them actually in the galley, then I would probably say Ben, Because I don't know if I would trust Adam to actually follow my preference
3: sheet. That's so true. It's a good point. Right, because
1: he did that. He knew that that guy didn't want onions.
3: Yeah, and he gave him
1: days (laughs) worth of onions. Yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, I suppose I I already cooked like Mila in college, right? Like, if you need really cheap
2: nachos (laughs) in the middle of the night.
0: (laughs) You could be a five-star
2: Michelin chef on board a... Super yacht. Yeah, I appreciate you throwing Mila in there just to look representative, but come on now. She shouldn't be on on the list at all.
0: She's she's less serve-safe than Kevin.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Didn't she
3: lick the steaks? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so Rosie's going with Ben. Are are you guys okay with Ben?
0: I am affirming Ben. I was already on board with him before the question was finished.
2: (laughs) Casey loves Ben, and I've been trying to love Ben for so long, I'll just leave it with, you. he will take care of all my weird academic dietary issues and restrictions. So I'll go with Ben. I won't, well, no, I don't begrudgingly, I'm going sounds begrudgingly. Like. I'm like, ugh, I don't, as a person, he could give us more.
3: I think in general, all the chefs could give us more <laughs> as people.
2: You know what I'd love to have? Like, I would like to have, this is my fantasy. Let's have a below deck, but let's have someone like, oh, I don't know, Gordon Ramsay or one of his spinoff people, like the presentation of the food, all the details. Can we just switch shows? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. For
3: your chief stew, you can choose from Kate, Hannah, or Adrian. So those are your your three stews. However, Kate Chastain has said recently that um, Dorinda Medley would make an excellent stew. Yes, because, but because, it's, because of how she wants to make it nice. So, I am willing to put Dorinda Medley here as your chief stew yes. as an option, even though she hasn't appeared on the show, but because Kate says that it is the housewife that could stew.
2: You're just putting her on there because you know she'll decorate for every holiday. Yes. Those would yes. be the best table setting. Dorinda Medley hands down. What do you think,
0: Rosie? Dorinda all the way. Okay.
3: Okay, so we just had we just had a Dorinda crossover, but we're really for it.
0: What do you like about Dorinda, Rosie?
1: Um, all of her decorations at her house, that scary, like, Bethany-looking doll, um, the cake, everything. I, well, I, she has a fifth room, really, that she could bring along.
3: So you love her Berkshire's parties, then? Yes. Yeah, I think they're adorable. I definitely wish that I could just peek inside her decorations closets.
2: You want to see if she has mm-hmm. any sweatshirts or sweaters, don't you?
3: Oh, she has so many, I'm sure. She probably has better Jingle Bell sweaters than I have.
2: Brenda, <laughs> if you're listening, perhaps you and K- Casey can have a craft night to make some sweaters.
3: <laughs> so for all of our listeners, um, the final tally on our Bonko party game, we have Captain Sandy, Joao is Bosun. Ben is our chef, and Dorinda Medley as our chief stew. Woo, and that concludes Bonko Party today. (laughs) Everybody's a winner. (laughs) So if it's okay with you, I'd like us to move into some more serious questions for you, Rosie. Yeah. So how did you get into Bravo, and how does watching the shows on the network help you with maintaining a work-life balance?
1: Sure. So I really got into Bravo when I was in grad school Um, and I would log in on my computer through my parents, uh, like charter, uh, Mm -hmm. their TV network. And so I could watch it when I would get home from class and it would just be such a great way to unwind or like you need to write three more pages before you can watch an episode as like a little motivational tool. And uh, now I use it as like a great getaway stress reliever from work. Um, I work in a domestic violence shelter and so I deal with some pretty traumatic problems on a daily basis and it's really nice to go home and watch stuff that, that it, like captures problems that are big and small, but a majority of the problems are things that would be great to have as problems <laughs> instead of like the problems that I deal with, uh, with our clients every day.
3: Yeah, I would think that um, dealing with, you know, can can Kyle buy this watch when she's on vacation <laughs> seems like like a much lighter issue for the day.
1: Right, absolutely.
3: So I am super remiss because I forgot to ask you to share your housewife's tagline with us.
1: Yeah. So Rosie, please
3: share what your housewife's tagline would be. Okay, and I'm going to start like
1: moving my head so it's very dramatic. Um I don't play the victim. I help empower
0: them.
2: Oh, that I is cool. love it. that.
0: That is so good.
2: <laughs> that is so Thank good. That, that is so good. Are you going you have a sound effect?
0: Oh. That deserves some applause.
2: That was such a good tagline. That was so good. I'm going to ask
3: you
0: to repeat it. There were multiple levels to that. You
3: should so have good. seen all of our faces. We were all like instantly like
2: <laughs> whoa. So, can I ask you to repeat it on three? Sure. 1 2 Oh, let me, because you're gonna get dramatic and move your head, and okay. action. I don't play the victim. I help empower
3: them. I just love that. That's such a good tagline. Mm-hmm.
2: That just resonates. <laughs> Thank like you. I think it brought tears to our eyes, and not I'm not being sarcastic. Yeah. That was beautiful. Thank and,
3: you. And it's such a perfect tagline for the work that you're doing and the things that we're talking about today. So I am
2: thrilled that that is your tagline. Me too. <laughs> I think that is a great segue into my into my question that I have for you, which is, how does viewing Bravo shows help people understand the kind of work that you do?
1: Sure. So I think a lot of people think that domestic violence, intimate partner violence, sexual assault can be kind of this far off thing that happens to their friends or um, kind of gets whispered about. And there's this really big public and private divide that like, If you hear something, you don't want to say something. You don't want to say too much about it because what happens in the house stays in the house. That's their business. Um, But when we see intimate partner violence on housewives franchises, it kind of peels back that curtain and shows that intimate partner violence can happen to anyone regardless of class, race, gender, sexuality, geographic location. Um, It can really permeate all those levels. Um, The dynamics may be very different but that power and control stays as a consistent theme. And so I think when intimate partner violence is on um, TV through the housewives or just talked about more in the media, viewers are able to see their lives reflected in ways that's not commonly shown. So I think it kind of gives a voice um, to populations that are often silenced in societies that have already been silenced. And then if they're presented or critiqued in a, thoughtful manner, it can really help the audience understand the situation at hand better. Thank you.
3: Yeah. That just made me think of the commercial that the Atlanta women did a couple seasons ago about, right. about um, domestic violence. And it brought me back around to um, New Jersey last season with Dolores Catania's work um, with the shelter and the benefit Um for the women and children surviving um, Mm -hmm. domestic violence in a way that we don't typically see these populations on the television. Right.
0: Um, Who are your top three uh, favorite Bravo leopardies and how did you go about picking them?
1: Um, So my first one is our chief Sue Dorinda um, (laughs) because I think she's, (laughs)
2: I love how you stayed on our new brand. Great. Right.
1: (laughs) Um, I think she just, like, always brings a strong presence and is ready to go and call things out. Um, But, like, also has, to me, like, this very mom vibe about her, which I like. Like, I think she tries to make things homey and fun and cutesy. Um, So I kind of like that balancing act. Um, and I think I see that a lot, like in her Instagram, the way that she posts is very like how a mom would post on Instagram. And I like that. Um, and then of course, Bethany, for me, I think, uh, it's nice to see like a strong, empowered woman. Um, sometimes she can be problematic, but like, I like that she speaks her mind and then also speaks the viewer's mind sometimes too, when she, she has this really great interview. Um, where she's critiquing everyone's outfits of, like, why were we wearing that? We all look like we're coming out of a carnival. Um, which, to me, is, like, what is going through the viewer's mind. And then uh, I think my third one would be Lisa Renna, because uh, she has, like, very good one-liners. Uh, I think she brings uh, a fun, lighthearted energy, um, but then can also, like, turn very quickly. Uh, like, with the whole uh, Kim Richards at the dining table when she broke the wine glass, Uh, It makes for good TV, though problematic.
3: Yeah. These are very popular housewives amongst the Bravo-demics. Like, I feel like these three housewives in particular are big fan favorites. Yes. So you mentioned that you have some conflicted feelings about the new season of Orange County. So I was wondering where you are at with all of these Orange County women right now.
1: Yeah, so I just watched, I'm a couple weeks behind, I just watched the episode where Kelly um, bonks Shannon with the mallet.
2: Yeah. Um, she didn't so, do it hard, according to her.
1: <laughs> no, and I, I don't think she did it that hard. I think she looks like a jerk when she did it, and like her entire commentary throughout the retreat so far has been very jerk-like. Um but I don't think she did it that hard. I think Shannon's just being a drama queen. And I, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of fabrication of storylines this season. That it just doesn't seem super organic to me. But I, I think Gina and Emily's friendship seems organic to me. But I think the forcing of, like, Tamara and Shannon and then Vicky as the friend, to me, that seems very calculated.
2: I think the kids on the street would call it thirsty calculated and thirsty. Yes,
1: it is. Thirsty behavior.
2: So do you just feel
3: like it's a little too contrived right now?
1: Yeah, too contrived. And then I also, I don't know, I just got such a weird vibe with that whole train rumor because, I don't know, I thought it was strange and maybe it's just the way that I've only heard people talk about trains, but normally when people talk about trains that I've read, it's, it's usually not a consensual act. And people are talking about mm-hmm. it, right? And people are talking about it as if, like, if Kelly had participated in a train, then they would be, like, I guess the hope was that she would be slut-shamed, but usually a train is typically, like, a sexual assault or I, multiple rape. So a, I just think that was handled
2: very poorly. Sorry, I keep cutting you off. I'm like, yes. Sorry. This is it. You're the first person I've had this conversation with. Um, Anytime I hear "train," I hear I, I hear violence. I hear the right. consent. There was no consent, and to have them throwing the, the, this around like this was an indication of her loose and wanton ways, it didn't work for me. If she, if they had said she's polyamorous, if they had said she had a threesome, a foursome, or what have you, but the language of "train" um, doesn't tell me that would be a it wouldn't be. It is something that you shouldn't be shaming some someone over. Mm-mm.
0: And I mean, what re, I mean all that is problematic. What sort of took it, that over the top for me too? I don't know if you've gotten to this part yet, but when Bronwyn talks about her own um, sexual experience with her husband, have you? What, oh no, the, when they're in the hot tub. Oh, do you mind if I spoil something? No, you can me? spoil it. Okay. Um, so Bronwyn, Tamra and Emily, and maybe Gina.
3: They're all in the hot tub together. They're
0: all naked in the hot tub together at one point, or close to naked. And mm-hmm. um, Bronwyn reveals that for her husband's 40th birthday...
3: Any any big birthdays. So I think it's the zeros and the fives.
0: Oh, maybe. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah, big yes. birthdays. Big birthdays. But specifically for his 40th birthday, uh, they had a threesome. And it became mm. this, like... M- it, I don't want to say they were quite. They
3: weren't as judgy. In fact, Gina said something like, oh, maybe a threesome would have saved my marriage. Um, She gets home and she lets her husband know that, hey, I told the women about our threesomes, but don't worry, like Tamara does it too, right? So then all of a sudden, like Tamara and Bronwyn are in this world where they're doing threesomes, but none of the women mind. And like, that is like healthy, um, you know, edgy sexual activity, according to the women. But then you have, you know, this Kelly on the train, which comes across as hyper racialized
2: to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also why we don't see any kind of uh, sympathy, right? It's highly racialized and we don't see any sympathy as well, because if we're taking it down the racial line, I mean, certainly Kelly is a Latina some days, um, you know it doesn't have any kind of feelings right she becomes this 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 object in some ways
3: but also I mean it's a it's an amazing plot point in and of itself because look at how far we've come in some ways on the show since Vicky's on the side of the mountain in Whistler screaming at Lori that she's never had a three that she's never had multiple partners in her life and she's calling her a piece of trash and like her head literally looks like it might pop on the side of Whistler Mountain
2: and now look at you. And now, look and like, at look at it. how far like,
3: the cast has evolved, right? So, um, I, I, I feel like in some ways this fits in with your analysis, Rosie, of it feeling very forced and kind of contrived. Yeah, because it's not like they already haven't had many parties where Tamara's talking about, you know, what her and Eddie do in the bedroom, and mm-hmm. even the very first episode or second episode when they're at her new housewarming and she's drunk and she's screaming, Eddie, like I want it in the butt, but like all the guests are still there. Right. Right. That felt so strange. Do you remember that this was this season?
1: Yeah. 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 That felt so strange. And then they got up on the, the like, um, bar and danced. Yes, exactly. During this very like barbecue. Right, so it's so hard
3: for me to see that these the,
2: Kelly the train thirsty, accusations, the, or even Kelly thirsty. and cocaine
3: as being anything else, but almost like a um, like a racial attack against Kelly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My thirsty comment, of course, was to Tamara and Eddie. Um, Max has his hand up like we're in the classroom. <laughs> Hold on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was also going to say, like, Kelly... Um, like we're also talking about this like it's a true rumor oh yeah she's that part. denied it oh yeah too. that part so like not only are they feeding into the rumor and slut shaming her on top of that like she's denying it and Bronwyn is over here going like look at me look at me and my sub yeah the racial politics are, yeah and so. I mean I feel like
3: Kelly in this moment has even said I wouldn't mind doing a threesome someday, right? But that's also not a train, which me, like which would mean, you know, according to Kelly, that these are activities that she hasn't yet engaged in, right? So the fact that they are slut-shaming her for things that she is, like, I'm, I haven't done. And even if she has done, right, like, I I, I, I can't understand the slut-shaming aspect of it. Well, there's, if, you know, if they're not going to treat everybody the same way.
2: There's also this gender divide, right? Because threesomes, oh, okay, it's the man and two women, two women mm-hmm. but w- w- wait for it to be a woman and two men. Let's let's, right. let's flip that script. And, and
3: all, Bronwyn said that's like totally off the table for them. It's, but it's usually
2: always, off the table the, for every husband man.
3: It's and the and, and her and another woman.
2: But then you have trains, right, where, um, you know, multiple men and a, a woman victim. I think that people lose sight of the fact that actually, however you s- if you, if you do the the um, reverse, you can actually have multiple women seducing and actually raping a man. So let me just go off on that sidebar for a minute. Um, everyone's looking at me like I took the train off the track. Rosie, do you want to speak? <laughs> no, you're no good. Go intended. for it. <laughs> so I, I, I while we're on this, and we're on this, like, sexuality question and also about um, consent and non-consent, one of the things that we have spoken about, the three of us, is this um, Real Housewives of Orange County episode with Tamra's son. And it's called Naked Wasted.
3: Oh, do you remember this? It was like season three, like really, or season oh, four. Oh, no, I do Really, don't. really,
2: really early on. Very early on. I'm, I'm giving Casey the cue because, you know, we've been very impassioned about this. But there's uh-huh. this episode where everyone wants to plot a, um, against Gretchen, right? The new, the new girl. And Tamara's the ringleader.
3: And Gretchen's fiancé, Jeff, at the time, um, was dying of, of um, cancer. cancer. I forget which kind of cancer, but he had cancer. He was very, very ill. And so she was out at a dinner party at Tamara's. And um,
2: Tamara tells Vicky that she's going to get her naked wasted. And what happens next is Tamra's son assumes the responsibility of not just you know enjoying Gretchen, playing with Gretchen with drinks, but also making lewd and licentious gestures and, gestures and comments at the table. At at the table. And
3: then how he, old is
2: this, is this Ryan?
3: This is Ryan, yes. and he must have been like maybe twenty-three. Or between somewhere between eighteen and twenty three. No, he was, because
0: he comes in season three when Tamara first came on, uh-huh. and then he was twenty three because I remember Simon giving him a talking to, like that was like so he might be okay. twenty three or
3: twenty four. But it's yeah. like clear that he's like had this conversation with his mom that they're gonna take down okay. Tamra, and he essentially take down Gretchen, or take down Gretchen, and then he essentially corners and kind of, kind of traps Gretchen in a room, and she's clearly, um.
0: And the camera's outside the room, so we don't actually see mm-hmm. what goes on in there. But there had been coercion throughout the night to, like, get her to drink more. Um, I was watching it recently uh. in, in, like, prep for this. Uh, and um, at one point, Ryan very subtly gives the sign for a shocker into the camera. which At is, the dinner table. Which is, like, um, a, a sexual act to be performed on... With women with your hands and like mm-hmm. like that he was like planning on doing that to Gretchen was completely disgusting and
3: she and like she's like pretty oblivious like she's just that drunk and Tamara oh knows God. that she is and Tamara is very vocal with Vicky about how she is essentially going to make Gretchen blackout drunk and, you know, essentially sick Ryan on her. And this is what happens. And it's left very ambiguous in the show as to what happens. And, you know, because Gretchen's engaged to an older man who's dying, um, you know, we I don't really think it's really ever conclusive what happened in that room. I think that we can assume what happened in that room. And the fact that Gretchen, I, I don't think she would ever admit She what left happened.
0: before any, she said that she left before anything occurred. Right. So I'm gonna just go with what she said on it,
3: right? But it was it was probably the most horrible mm-hmm. housewife scene of any franchise I've ever seen. Just in what yes, uh, one housewife was willing to
2: do to another. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed, and I think that that forever just I don't want to say colored tainted how I viewed Tamra. Because I mean, it was very, it was very, it, it wasn't just mean girl. It was very predatory, right? No, that's abusive behavior. Indeed, right, right. We can <laughs> yeah. all agree on that. Mm-hmm. I heard you. I heard you on the mic going, Ugh, "What? Who?" It was. It was really. It was really disgusting. So, right. That is. That is.
1: That is really manipulative, and dark, just scary.
3: So, do you mind if I quickly insert? our Bravo News update here, because it's actually about Orange County. Sure. Okay, so here's our Bravo News update music. Okay, so according to a report that I found from Radar Online, this new season of Housewives, where we see Vicky as demoted as a friend of the show, apparently Bravo asked Alexis to return. And Alexis said she could not and would not return until Tamra Judge was off the show. So Tamra's still on the show. We don't have Alexis back. I, I wonder if that means if they give Tamra the axe, if we get Alexis. Um, apparently, since Alexis's departure, Tamara has profited by selling Jesus Jug's coffee
2: mugs. Um, Jesus Jugs being the nickname she gave Alexis.
3: Yes. So um, I wanted you three as our expert panel to weigh in on what you think of this potential for a return of Alexis, a single Alexis minus Jim. And um, how you feel about Tamara still being on the show, how you feel like it might go with Tamara off the show, however you want to take this. And the other piece of Orange County Bravo breaking news is that Kelly alleges that Steve Lodge didn't even buy Vicky's engagement ring, that Vicky went and picked out and bought her own engagement ring Uh, (laughs) because because she could not even be a friend of the show, apparently, if she wasn't engaged on camera. So these are two different stories that I found. So however the three of you want to take that. Rosie, you're up first.
1: Sure. So I would say that our last conversation is more proof that it's time for Tamara to go. Absolute um Last time. Yeah, I think moving her out of the show would also perhaps spark some of some more organic storylines.
3: And any thoughts about Vicky buying her own engagement ring?
1: Oh, um, I can see that happening, but I also feel like the outrage surrounding it comes from a very gendered place of what are our traditional um, relationship steps, who's going to provide the ring, what does the ring signify, um, how would that take away from his masculinity, and all that good stuff.
2: Cool. And I would add um, Vicky buying her own ring is consistent. Right. It's consistent to the brand is consistent mm-hmm. to her being the moneymaker. So it's not it's not off script or off character at all.
0: Yeah, I agree with all those points. I mean, she really Steve Lodge, I think, is the only house husband to or or fiance in this case to have two human rights court cases against him when he was a police officer. I believe this alleged, I read this in the OC Register. Um, So, like, I guess, because I'm not particularly fond of Vicky, like, they deserve each other.
2: (laughs) For those listening, Orange County, California, is not as as horrible as as this show is making it out to be. There are nice people in Orange County, California.
3: Yeah. But we still do have tense
0: race politics. Absolutely.
2: As Yeah, most places in the United States. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, thank you. That was an excellent panel weigh in for Bravo Breaking
2: News. So, can we pivot to Real Housewives of Beverly Hills? Rosie, given your work on intimate partner violence, can you discuss the early seasons of Beverly Hills, particularly Taylor's storyline? Yeah. So, we meet
1: Taylor um, and her husband, Russell, in season one. And when we first meet them, we see that they don't have your typical fairy tale romance, that it's very much a business based romance. I think Taylor says that it's 80% business, 20% romance. Um, but she knew that when she got married. It's what she, quote, signed up for. So she says that she understood the dynamics of this relationship. And we see, um, I think it's their first interaction together, kind of this demeaning like belittling conversation they're having at a restaurant. And Russell says, so what's the latest with your little company? And Taylor kind of pushes back and says, you know, don't call it little. Um, but she also says she doesn't want to rock the boat too much in case Russell finds a younger, better thing. Um, saying that, you know, implying that she's a car to trade in and then he can upgrade and get a better, faster, shinier model. Um, But then season two comes in and there seems to be some chatter that Russell and Taylor's relationship isn't just based on, it's not based on business and there's not this romance, but there's actually um, a level of abuse to it. But it seems that there are a lot of the conversations between Taylor and the other castmates are happening behind the scenes and that there's this, kind of like this repeated pattern of Taylor having highs and lows and going up and down that follow along with the stress of her marriage. And then it all kind of comes out at this tea party that Lisa Vanderpump has um, with Camille Grammer um, exposing Taylor's secret.
2: Um, Do you think that Taylor's experience with her relationship was representative of other survivors?
1: I think so. I think... Trying to keep a brave face to the outside um, while going through something very scary and traumatic inside your home. Uh, I think that is a parallel that a lot of people who are in abusive relationships find. Um, I think a lot of the questions from her friends are a lot of the things that survivors say their friends and family ask them. Like, well, we don't see any bruises, or why are you, you're just telling me all these awful things about him, now you're leaving our conversation to go away with him for the weekend. Why would you do that if he's such an awful, terrible, scary person? Um, So that's a lot of the rhetoric that survivors hear, and we were hearing Taylor um, have to face those questions as well.
0: And also, I mean, with this most recent season of Beverly Hills with Camille, in the conversation during the Kavanaugh hearings saying mm-hmm. that, um, well, I'm a victim too and I told everybody. So she should have, uh, Dr. Blasi Ford should have told everybody because that's what I did.
1: Right. It seems very much uh, that Camille maybe quite doesn't understand that survivors need to have control of their own narratives. And they may not be ready to talk about it on the same timetable as the next survivor, and that's totally fine. They need to just decide if they want to talk about it, who they want to talk about it with, when they want to talk about it, um, what social circles they want to bring it up with. That um, it's really never the right of a third party to call it out, to expose it, um, because that can make things really unsafe for that survivor um, to have that out in the open.
0: Um, so going back to Taylor and Russell serving kind of as this foil for uh Lisa and Ken, um, and specifically talking more about Ken situating him in Vanderpump and Beverly Hills, he's he comes off very aggressive, very belittling, um, and demeaning to um to to employees to women on the show. Um, How would you situate him in relationship to Lisa and the other Beverly Hills housewives? Yeah. So
1: I think that Ken's masculinity like really comes out as this protector role of Lisa that he, like his big fight with Kyle in the kitchen this past season. um, Or when I think it was with um, James Kennedy, he, you know, tried to give him this really tough talk to James about Lisa. Um, That he shows this toxic masculinity to protect Lisa, but because he's protecting her, people aren't quick to call it out because he's falling in line with what, like, a romantic man should do, protect, like, his partner.
3: I feel like the only person that really called him out for it was Yolanda.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: And he was very uh, dismissive di- dismissive of her when she was trying to explain how
1: inappropriate he was.
2: Mm-hmm. We're all
1: yeah, nodding our think, heads. Yeah, I think didn't he? Uh, oh, there was something he called her. I think he might have called her a bitch or something at a party, right? Or maybe he called her stupid.
0: Stupid. Yeah, it, was, it stupid. was stupid.
3: Yeah, and she definitely took offense to that. And I mean, throughout that. That dinner party, you know, they had that conflict, and then it came up again on the reunion, and um, Ken was horribly dismissive and demeaning to Yolanda, think, and Yolanda was making perfectly fair points about Ken's behavior toward women. hmm Yeah. Yeah, she was yeah, wrong. And- but I, I so agree with, that. like, Ken in particular displays a very toxic masculinity. Yeah.
1: And he had that whole, um, I can't remember who it was with, but he said he would never go to counseling. That it's just not what a man would do.
3: Well, and apparently they had allegedly some lawsuits with Vanderpump dogs Mm -hmm. and whatever, and it was because Ken actually got physically aggressive with people. And I'm not sure if these were male employees or female employees or both.
0: As it was alleged.
3: Right. Uh, But it was alleged that part of their lawsuits going on with Vanderpump dogs was Ken's aggressiveness with other people. That transcended just a verbal aggression that had moved into like physical altercation. And this was a couple seasons ago.
0: I mean, Ken is also, he's a guy who wears pink shirts and like carries around like really floofy dogs Mm -hmm. for lack of a better Mm -hmm. description for them. And like is very (laughs) doting on his wife, which I don't, all these things, I don't tend to associate with like toxic masculinity or behaviors we would associate with toxic masculinity either.
3: I just feel like once he feels like, Lisa is backed into a corner that he's backed into a corner is where you see this toxicity mm-hmm. come out. Right. And that's mm-hmm. you kind
2: know, of a very traditional gender role. I will protect my yeah. woman in my house mm-hmm. so much so that it can perpetrate violence onto someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think Ken is very complicated, but I think he's um very emblematic of just the type of person that um I don't want to say the type of person we should be looking at. I think Ken's an easy person to look at and say, ooh, I could see there's a volatile behaviorism behaviorisms there. Absolutely. There's some volatile whereas there might be someone else that's a little um more shrewd, right? I think this is the definition of sociopaths to everyone outside, they look normal, but they're really really torturing people and terrorizing people in the home
3: well and i feel like this is that contrast still between ken and russell i, I don't know, know, I, don't was know a jerk. You, uh, I don't know if you feel the same but like i feel like i mean i think this is maybe part of those friends questioning like well if he's so bad why are you going right like that almost like a denial that russell was cruel
2: right but if you knew what you were right. looking before, everyone knew russell was cruel like it wasn't right. a surprise everyone knew russell was cruel okay I'm clearly talking about someone who's too into these kind of dynamics because I look for it everywhere. Nothing I heard about Russell surprised me.
1: No, zero. Absolutely zero.
3: Another facet of domestic violence is the parental abuse of children, which is something that comes up pretty frequently on RONI. Um, I was going to say perhaps the most frequently, but now that we have Dallas, this is a recurrent Um, talking point with Leanne who's constantly Mm -hmm. sharing her experience with child abuse. Um, But I was wondering if you could talk to us about Bethany and Ramona's childhoods and if you could take us on a deep dive on the season seven encounter that happens between Bethany and her stepfather, John, and what happened in this meeting? What does it tell us about the dynamic between survivors, abusers, and the way that child abuse becomes internalized?
1: Sure. So to start with Bethany and Ramona, they really have like a heart to heart, um, about their abuse. And I think see a lot of themselves in one another when they open up about their very traumatic and dangerous childhoods. Um, and we see that a lot with folks in our support group, um, that people really find comfort knowing that they're not alone in their situation, that their abuser has isolated them and made them fearful to make um, respecting, um, lovable, open communication relationships because they've had to navigate in a way that doesn't foster those relationships. And so people who have experienced abuse often find um, really meaningful relationships with other people who have experienced abuse because they can empathize. They can say, we're not alone in this. So I think that was really meaningful for Bethany and Ramona to have that conversation. Um, But that happens a couple of seasons after Bethany has this conversation with her dad. Um, I think it's her stepfather, but she refers to him as the only dad that she's really known. Uh, And so she goes to Florida To chat with him and before she does that she meets with a friend to kind of talk about it and the friend is a old friend I think they like knew each other in high school and so she was aware of the dynamics of Bethany's parents um and even just the way that they're talking about the childhood um abuse that Bethany's witnessed or the abuse that she's witnessed in her childhood rather um is a little problematic and so the friend says, um, well, you know, your dad had a bad temper. Uh, she she made him crazy as if, it, as if a woman is supposed to be controlling a man's behavior. Um, that's a common narrative that we see, I think, in society that, well, why didn't she just not do that? Couldn't she have just done what he asked for? And then that situation could have just been avoided. Um, so it puts blame on the victim again. Um, but it also really shows how children are used as bargaining chips a lot of the times in um, violent or abusive relationships that um, kids can be the custody of kids can be used to control or manipulate uh, one parent against the other. And so Bethany has this conversation with her friend in preparation to go talk with her dad. And so when she talks with her dad, um, we get a lot of really interesting themes. Um, she says that she's not really like she, she wouldn't change anything about her childhood if she could, that the abuse made her who she is. She's stronger because of it. Uh, and to me, that's a really dangerous road to go down um, because kids don't need abuse to be stronger. They, they, kids should be safe and should be empowered that I fully recognize that when terrible traumatic things happen, the way we deal with them is to try to put puzzle pieces in our lives together. Um, But Bethany also goes back to say, I hold no anger. Um, He's a good person and you can feel that. So it's a lot of melding of, trying to reconcile these feelings of love with the terrible things, the person that you've loved has done. Um, and we see that a lot with anyone who has an abusive partner, because at the end of the day, most likely they fell in love with that person. That person's not a monster. 100% of the time, we know there's a cycle of abuse, um, where there's a buildup, there's an explosion and then there's a honeymoon. Um, And so that person loves them and really wants to try to make it work. Uh, And I think we see that coming out with Bethany and her relationship with her father. Um, when they kind of talk about everything, her father, John says, I'm sorry for what you've experienced. Like he keeps repeating that phrase, which to me is kind of like a cop out because it's not taking accountability that he had a hand in that experience. Um, it's just saying I'm sorry for the circumstances, not saying I'm sorry that I caused those circumstances. Um, so I think that that's a way a lot of abusers say they are going to be better. They w- want to change. Um, but at the end of the day, the first step of change is to take accountability for your actions. Um yeah. And then it also, it kind of concludes with Bethany saying that other people have experienced worse trauma. Um, but that's also a common thing that abusers say to kind of invalidate their own feelings.
2: I, w- I would agree with everything you say. And, you know, you're the resident expert. I think in Bethany, we see what it what. Um, is a perfect example of what I call the afterlife of the abuse not PTSD but more like these lingering consequences that permeate all aspects of uh, of one's life as you as you just um, demonstrated so I guess I would actually like to ask you about Leanne from Real Housewives of Dallas yeah in conversation with this how do people survive their abuse in some ways what are their coping mechanisms I just think that there's something about this kind of afterlife and how women are making, in these cases, these women are making sense of what happened to them and how it becomes a story arc.
3: And I feel like Bethany, Ramona and Leanne demonstrate different coping
2: methods. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I am, I watched, I just watched the episode of Dallas where they're sitting around the table and Leanne is talking about her abuse. And, Everyone, they're in Mexico at, um, the new Carrie's house. Um, and everyone seems to be really tired of Leanne bringing up the abuse that happened to her. Um, but as someone who works in the field, to me, that kind of triggers something in me that says, okay, she hasn't actually processed the abuse. Um, and she wants to talk to people about it and, It can be really damaging if you want to talk to people about it and then you keep getting shut down of now is not the appropriate time. Um, You know, we'll talk about it later. At the same time, people do need to be held accountable for their own actions. Um, But I think it's the responsibility of society to understand how abuse and trauma can influence people's actions as well.
3: Do you think that um, the way that Leanne brings it up is similar or different to how Ramona does?
1: Um, to me, I feel like Ramona brings it up a little less than Leanne. Um, I, But I do think it's a lot of the same um, not really taking responsibility for your actions. And if we look back to how John, Bethany's dad, said, I'm sorry for your experiences and didn't take responsibility for his actions. If you haven't had a clear outline of how to take responsibility for your actions and to learn that it's okay to make mistakes and you say, I'm sorry, I will change my behavior. And that's totally fine. If you haven't had that framework, then it's really hard for you to kind of navigate in that space.
2: I think your comments hit on this um, really important point in that sometimes survivors are want to only, only, um, respond to their abusers in the negative or surround them with love. But this accountability point, at what point do the people who are victims do, are you also saying that they need to take some kind of accountability for their own actions? Um, Is that what you're saying? Um, Or did I take that too far?
1: Right. So I would say that it's never the victim or survivor's fault, any of the, you know, the trauma or the abuse. Um, But I think perhaps in the same way that everyone who wants to be mindful of their actions might understand, um, like, oh, why am I hesitant to, you know, like, commit to this person in my life? My life? Is it because I, like, why am I afraid of commitment? And examining your own life that I just think it's a good thing that most everybody examines their life.
2: So more about self-awareness. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, great.
0: What about moments when women are being abusive on Bravo shows? Um, How are women committing abuse positioned differently on the shows or maybe dismissed or ignored in these moments? I'm thinking uh, about Kate Chastain, uh, for one, on Below Deck um, and her 2016 domestic um, violence arrest.
1: Yeah, so I think, Especially on Housewives, we see a huge dismissal of it that, um, like, um, on Roni, like with Jules and with Kelly, um, it's not really brought up until the finale. And then it's brought up as one question and then they move on about it. Um, and I think it's seen that even, so I think a lot of the times we see that, oh, well, the woman is being positioned as the abuser. A, that couldn't happen, B, if that did happen, it couldn't be so bad, is the narrative that I think we get a lot of the time.
3: Yeah, but this, this is, of course, not true,
1: right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Because we know intimate partner violence is about power and control, um, physical violence can happen, but then there's a range of emotional abuse, uh, financial abuse, economic uh, economic abuse for financial abuse, um, just different isolation techniques. And so we know that it can go in all directions. It's not, it doesn't just have to be based in a heterosexual relationship, um, with the man being abusive towards the woman. Um, I think when we get those storylines where it falls out of the norm, we don't really know how to handle it. And so it just gets brushed under the rug.
2: So can we talk, thank you, first of all, thank you for all of this um, kind of deep dive into some of the most disturbing aspects of of reality television. Um, I want to pivot just quickly to Southern Charm. I don't know if you watch Mm -hmm. Southern Charm. Um, Yes, I do. Excellent. So can we talk about the dynamic between Thomas and Catherine? What can you say using Thomas and Catherine as an example about the life cycle of controlling relationships or the life cycle of, of abuse?
1: Yeah. So Thomas and Catherine, um, was actually a pretty uh, like interesting, um, like almost study to see with me and my girlfriends. Um, because I was very much in the same way that we talked about, um, Russell, like, to me, Thomas was showing signs like classic abuser signs from season one. Um, but a lot of my girlfriends watching the show very much thought that thought that, you know, Catherine was the one bringing down the relationship. Um, but we see a lot of power and control with Catherine and Thomas, um, that there's the life cycle, of their relationship very much is get together, move in, um, Twice they had children together um, and then kind of live in this honeymoon period, especially when Catherine's pregnant, um, where Thomas offers to pay her rent, um, make sure she's set up, make sure people aren't attacking her. And then once she has the children, um, Thomas really aims to isolate her from all of her friends.
3: Do you see a lot of cases every day in your center at St. Louis? Of Of various types of, of, um, domestic violence issues, whether it's, you know, intimate, intimate partner violence, child abuse, um, issues of healthcare workers. Um, like what is, I mean, what does a day at your shelter look
1: like? Oh, sure. Um, so we are a 30 bed shelter. Um, consistently though, we have more than 30, um, folks with us. Uh, if mom and kiddo, or kiddos want to co-sleep together, then we let them ha- let that happen. Um, so if there's like a mom and her three-year-old want to share the bed, we let that happen. So typically we hover around 34 people in shelter. Um, we get hotlines 24-7, um, 365 days a year. We're always staffed. Um, but because we usually are over capacity, we can't accept everyone. So we try to refer them out to our partner program Um, But it is very challenging for people to find a program that will, A, accept them and then also fit their needs. Um, So the shelter that I work at is very inclusive um, and we serve anyone of any gender. um, And we also don't look at their relationship to their abuser. So some shelters say it has to be intimate partner violence. So if they're getting abused by a cousin or a brother, they wouldn't take that person into their shelter. We're very fortunate that our framework allows us to bring those people into our shelter. Thank
3: you. Um, I, I mean, I, I I just feel like it's important to let people know what what this looks like, right? Like what a day right. in, in your life looks like um, helping people and the kinds of cases you see and, um, you know, how you know, potentially difficult it could be for somebody to find a place of refuge to go to, you know, while they are are trying to find help and a way out of their situation and and back on their feet.
1: Right. Yeah. Something that was super shocking to me um, when I started working here was the amount of clients that come in who don't have their, like, license, social security card or birth certificate um, because their abuser has either taken it or has physically destroyed it in front of them, which then makes it extremely hard to leave because then you don't have any identification of who you are. You can't get a job. Um, You can't enroll your kids in school. Um, If you get pulled over, you're going to get, be in a lot of trouble. Um, So really a lot of our shelters in the area have um, a 30 or 60 day limit and we, try not to work within those limits. We try to have longer stays um, than that just because by virtue of the process, it takes a couple weeks to get a new birth certificate. Yeah. And so, right, you can't get a new job if you don't have a Social Security card.
2: Right. right. So, Rosie, can we take this moment uh, to break from the actual conversation about Bravo And acknowledge the fact that, you know, some of our listeners might actually be in an abusive relationship or they're starting to realize um, some of these cycles of violence that you speak about. Can you just give us the like quick kind of uh, there's not a quick rundown, but if someone is in one of these situations, could you give them a little bit of advice beyond calling a hotline? Um, What kind of documents should they put aside yeah. When would they know when to leave? Just some, just general advice. Right.
1: So, um, a big part of what we do is safety planning. So, if you're able to acquire your documents, get them, put them in a folder, um, maybe keep them in your purse or somewhere that you know um, you can keep track of them. If you're able to keep um, a packed night like overnight bags, um, in your trunk or in the garage. Um, that you could just grab and go with. Uh, if you're comfortable telling a family or a friend or a family member or a friend about the situation or have a code word or a code phrase that if you told that to them or you texted that to them, they would know um, to send law enforcement, police, um, any emergency responders to your location. And then um, just some practical stuff too. Uh, well, that's practical, but practical in the moment of. If an abusive, violent incident was happening, trying to position yourself so you're closest to the door so you can exit, and then moving away from um, kitchens because there are lots of knives, sharp objects in the kitchen, and then um, being aware if your partner owns any guns or firearms, um, that can really change the dynamic very quickly in a situation.
2: And what about if people have children, what is, what, is there any advice? Um, Do, do, do they gather the children? Do they put the children somewhere first? Yeah. So
1: um, what we say is each survivor is the expert of their experience. So they know if it's going to upset their partner, their abuser more if they send the kids away um, versus, if they can play a movie downstairs and make sure their kids are far away from the incident that may take place, um, they're the ones who know if that what's going to be the best situation for that. Each state has a has different laws um, about parental kidnapping. Um, so, I'm in St. Louis and in Missouri, domestic violence is one of the exceptions that. If you've experienced domestic violence and you take your kids, then you can't be charged with parental kidnapping. But each state has its own set of laws around that.
2: Thank you, thank you. I, I just felt like it was going to be a missed opportunity if we did not kind of acknowledge that people could be struggling with this right now. And and here we have Absolutely. an expert, right? Here we have an thank expert. Thank you so, so much. No, thank you. Thank you.
3: So I'd like to wrap up this conversation on various forms of abuse by talking about the issue of cyber harassment and revenge porn that's come up on Vanderpump rules with Stassi and one of her ex-boyfriends. Can you talk to us about what happened in this case and how this affected Lisa and Stassi's relationship and how did Stassi end up dealing with this incident in her book?
1: Yeah. So um, Stassi, in season one, when she broke up with um, Jack for a brief time, she started dating a person named Frank, and then um, they broke up. And I think, if we remember correctly, he got fired from Sir because he was threatening to um, assault a customer. But like in a very eighth grade, um, like he threatened to like give him a wedgie, which is which is an assault and also just like a very odd threat for a professional in the workplace to give a customer. Um, But we, it's kind of built up that already Frank is not this nice guy. Uh, And then later we learn that he kind of, that he asked Dossie, I think, for a sex tape for a video of her um, masturbating, um, but that he wanted to see her face in the video. And she kind of alludes when she's talking with her girlfriends that she wasn't super comfortable showing her face, but that's what he wanted. So that's what she did. And then later she found out that, um, well, first he went to her and said he was going to release the tape, um, for 900 and, but he wouldn't, if he gave her $900 and Stassi said, you know, I'm not going to deal with that. But then he went to, uh, Lisa and Ken and told them the same thing and, Ken and Lisa paid him the $900 uh, in cash uh, and just made it disappear. And Stassi felt like Lisa really took the narrative of, you should be thanking me for this. I was the hero in that situation, quote, I took care of it. Um, and so Stassi and Lisa had a falling out about this, among other things. And then when they try to come back together to reconcile, there's a lot of victim blaming that comes, um, from Lisa's side telling Stassi that I told you he was pleasy um, we helped you out with this and then you turned around and I think it was at that point Stassi had col- had told Lisa that she was an old woman and so Lisa felt very hurt by that after she had just done this for Stassi um, so we see that a lot of Stassi's agency in the situation was taken away because first off she sent a video to her partner at the time um which we can assume she only wanted her partner to see she didn't consent for other people to see it and then she also didn't consent for anyone else to pay him for it not to be seen that she didn't really get to control her own narrative there um so she didn't really speak out about it until her book when she named um that it was indeed frank who was that person who tried to exploit her
3: can you tell us what's next for you? You you teach, you um, work at the center. I also think we haven't necessarily mentioned it, but we probably should that it that these sorts of abuses can happen regardless of what your relationship looks like, um, or relationships, right? Like this happens within families. This happens, um, you know, within um, the LGBTQ plus community too. It just isn't something that happens between heterosexual couples like we see on Bravo. So what do you want people to know about your work, um, shelter, how to seek help, anything at all? What's what's next for you?
1: So I'm going to continue on um, in my life of teaching, um, working at the shelter, and really pursuing those uh, aspects in my life. I would also really be interested in um, delving into becoming an expert witness um, for court cases. And so um, being able to give testimony about what a typical relationship looks like, um, the power and control cycles, uh, and trying to enlighten people using the legal system so we can hopefully get more just results um in that in that part of our society. Um, I'm also writing a chapter for the historians for the historians on housewives book uh, on intimate partner violence. Ooh, and which so we're so I'm excited to... about. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited. <laughs> I think it's
3: it's such an important topic and it's really um I think like you've said at the very beginning of the podcast, it's not something that's typically um, portrayed on on the television in, in this kind of way um, or can be such an important tool for, for talking about.
1: Yeah, so I'm excited to catch up on um, more of the franchises, more of the cities, so I can make sure my chapter is super inclusive um, and really looks at all of the dimensions of intimate partner violence. And if anyone has um, any ideas, inputs, um I would love to be able to chat about that. Um, email is probably the best way at Rosemarie, R-O-S-E-M-A-R-I-E, Jones, J-O-N-E-S, S nine eight at Gmail.
3: And do you have a Twitter or anything like that that you use?
1: I have an Instagram, um, and that handle is Rosemarie, how it's spelled in my email, but with three E's, and then Jones. Great. Thank you
3: so much for being here with Thank us today. You. I feel like this was a really important episode and you know, it's it's I think f- filled with a lot of things that you know, it's tough to think about and talk about, but it's really important to sit
2: with. Indeed. And Rosie is as, as as I tell my students when we do Black women's history, um particularly Black women and violence self-care is so very important so thank you for the work you do and I hope that you engage in some kind of self-care after this episode and each weekend thank you so much I'm on my way for margaritas beautiful
3: (laughs) okay thank you thank you thank you and we're so looking forward to your chapter and working with you more with historians on housewives
1: thank you me too
3: Thank you for joining us on another episode of Historians on Housewives. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com, where you can propose your own episode topic or journal article, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at historiansh, and we tweet Sunday through Thursday. Thank you, Rosemary Jones. This show was brought to you with support by Barbara and Mark Speer, Saddleback Community College, Christina Hinkle, Christina Gamberpore, Jed Murlaski, Pete Murray, Cody Baker, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Lara Loper, Kim Bettendorf, and Luis Oscio de Dios. And remember, scholars do bravo too. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Historians on Housewives. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com, where you can propose your own episode topic, journal article, ask us questions, send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Historians H. And, of course, there's um, our tweets that we do Sunday through Thursday, so interact with us let us know what you're thinking and you can always do
0: this one more time
3: sorry all <laughs> of a sudden something like bled together and i was like what is at historians housewives podcast
2: pregnancy brain
3: totally
0: do we have at historians Housewife on housewives podcast
3: no we don't i don't know how it even appeared there so i was we like, don't have a
2: historians on housewives podcast no we don't have a Historians on housewives podcast we're doing that right now
3: not as an not as an, not as an at it's
2: Oh, she just
0: <laughs> created that out of nowhere.
3: I, I, that's why I, it was written on the paper. I read the paper. Okay.